Welcome to the First Podcast, a podcast of First Baptist Church Lake Butler, where the pastors gather to encourage and equip our church to engage the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hello and welcome. My name is Pastor Jonathan, and this is going to be a little unique episode of the first podcast because, as God's providence has it, neither of my co-laborers, Pastors Jason and Pastor Stephen, are going to be able to join today for the podcast. Pastor Stephen is at the Sing Conference up in Nashville, and Pastor Jason's working on a lot of projects and is just unable to be in right now and is pretty swamped. So today, I want to talk about a question that some of you might have, but I would guess that many of you have never really asked. And that is, have you ever noticed a footnote in your Bible when you are finishing Mark's gospel? So you're reading through the Bible in your normal reading plan, or maybe you've you've heard a sermon on the gospel of Mark, and you come to the end, and in the English Standard Version of the Bible, in the copy that I'm looking at right now, it says... Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. So what's that about? What should we think about this? What does it mean that our Bibles include this spot where it seems like maybe it doesn't even belong? Is what is in our Bibles really up for question? Should we teach and believe what is in chapter 16, verses 9 through 20? And so, our question for today is, where did Mark end his gospel? Is it right to see verses 9 through 20 as original to Mark, the author, the one who was with Jesus? So, to begin this question, let me read Mark chapter 16 so we have context and know what we're talking about. This is how Mark 16 goes. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That is the end of verse 8. Now, verse 9. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive... And had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into the world. 
And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God, and they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs." So that is the text that we are talking about. This is our question. Where did Mark end his gospel? And to just be upfront, I'm just going to say pastorally, this is of big importance. Should we treat these verses as from Mark and therefore attached to his gospel? That's our question. So I'll put my cards on the table and I'm going to say what I believe and then I'm going to back it up for five reasons. Here's what I believe. I believe Mark ended his gospel in chapter 16, verse 8. So the so-called long ending of Mark is not original to him. It wasn't what he wrote originally. And I say that for five reasons. I'll give you the five. I'll try to put them in the show notes so that you can reference them. Here's the first reason. Mark 16 verses 9 through 20, that section that's added, has different vocabulary, grammar, and theology from the rest of the gospel. Look, we all know the experience of writing something like a letter or a text message to somebody, and we have a certain style. We're trying to say a certain thing. And here in verses 9 through 20, it just seems out of place. The words are different the people are different, and even the theology is different. And so that's, I think, a big reason to say, man, what is going on here? It doesn't really seem to fit Mark's story, let alone in verse 8. It ends in a very punchy way. It's saying they're afraid, you know, Jesus has risen. What's going to happen? The whole gospel is very punchy. So that's the first reason. It has different vocabulary, grammar, and theology from the rest of the gospel. The second reason is that almost all versions of texts that are longer are not the original. Here we're going to get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of what theology nerds like me call textual criticism. And this is just the science of trying to decide and discover with all the manuscripts of the Bible that we have, what was original to the actual author. So in all of the accounts we have of Mark's gospel, what we have here printed in our Bibles is the longest version we could have. But in textual criticism, a big rule that we should follow is is that usually the shorter accounts lead to then longer things. It's a lot more common for things to be added in than for texts to be subtracted from. Because in the role of scribes, they're often trying to figure out, hey, did we get everything? Is it all in here? Trying to make sure that they didn't miss anything. So that's the second reason. Almost all versions of texts that are longer are not the original. Reason number three, Mark's style is to write short and punchy accounts. Like I said earlier, 
as you read through this whole gospel, he's just the king of saying, and this happened, and then this, and boom, and bang, and it's just like short stuff here and there. He just writes so simple and easy to understand. He's probably primarily writing for a Gentile audience who aren't Jewish, those who just need to know the basics, the nuts and bolts, the spark notes version of what Jesus did, which is why his gospel is only 16 chapters, is the shortest of any of them. So we need to see that, that his style all throughout is to be very concise. And so when the verses of verse 9 through 20 don't really seem to align with that, it should make us question. So that's our third reason. Here's our fourth reason. Mary Magdalene is introduced as though readers do not know who she is, even though she has been in the previous three episodes. Just go back and read these last chapters of Mark, and you'll see Mary Magdalene has a pretty key role. But then here, in this longer ending in verse 9, it says, "...to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons." So you have to just ask the question, why would Mark seem to need to introduce who she was, to identify who she is for his readers, if he's already done that all throughout the gospel? It doesn't really seem to fit Mark's style and what he has written before. So that's our fourth reason. And then last and fifth, here's why I think Mark ended his gospel in verse eight. The stories that follow are summaries of resurrection appearances in the other three gospels. So the stuff that's added shouldn't be viewed as like, oh, this is heresy that's creeping into our Bibles, or these are probably from weird authors from other places and and we can't really track what's happening. No, I think these stories are really just accounts from other places in scripture. And if you dig a little bit, you can kind of start seeing this. You know, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, verses 11 through 18, as he does here. Jesus also Uh, appears to these two disappointed disciples in Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. He shows up to the 11 in Matthew 28, Luke 24, John 20, and 1 Corinthians 15. He commissions the disciples over in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and in Acts chapter 1. There's a declaration of belief and baptism tied in with salvation and then how unbelief leads to condemnation in Acts 2.38 and then in 16.31. There's talk of casting out of demons in Luke 10, Acts 5, 16 and 19. There's even mention of speaking in tongues in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. Even handling of snakes in Luke chapter 10, verse 19, and Acts 28, verses 3 through 6. There are other things like laying of of hands to heal, the ascension of Jesus, sitting down at the right hand of God, and then confirming the Lord's words by signs. Look, the stuff in verses 9 through 20 are not from nowhere. They are real, true things that I think can be verified through other scripture. And so we don't have to be worried. We shouldn't approach this being like, man, can I trust anything in this Bible? Instead, what we should see is that this just probably wasn't what Mark included in verses 9 through 20. Mark probably ended and put down his pen or whoever he was dictating this to in verse 8. So with those five reasons, just for a few minutes, I want to just remind us what we must remember when it comes to the Bible. First, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky. 
in some like fully printed state in nice, you know, leather bound copy complete with maps. That's just not how it happened. There has been a history of manuscripts from the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what has happened. Eyewitnesses of the events have written down what they saw or they have talked to eyewitnesses or even in a situation like Moses, he had to write down what was traditionally remembered and passed down through oral tradition. But with the New Testament, after eyewitnesses gave the content of the gospel, then what happened was now the job of scribes. They then would take the document and they would do their best to go from one document to the other. This is the day before the control C and then control V, you know, where you copy and paste through a computer. It was very tough, arduous work if you were a scribe. You're working from sunup to sundown. Your eyes are probably getting a little blurry. You're working in tough, often cold conditions. And your whole job is just to make sure one document appears that is a, an exact replica of the other document. And so we just know because scribes were humans, they were going to make some errors. And that's how we continued to get the biblical manuscripts up until 1420 when the movable type printing press was invented and we could actually publish books through a printing press. So that's the first thing we need to remember. The Bible didn't just fall out of the sky in a fully printed state. But the second thing we need to know is that people were involved in the process of copying the Bible and people are often flawed. So we know, as 2 Timothy 3 tells us, all of the Bible is inspired and infallible. It's perfect. It's exactly what we need to know. Go read Psalm 119 and you will see that God's word is amazing. It's all the wisdom we need. This is what God wants us to have. We have his word and that is amazing. But when we say that God's word is perfect and infallible and without error, we are not saying that copies of God's word are perfect and without error. We're saying the very first editions that were written were perfect and without error. That's exactly what God wanted us to have. And so the whole process of textual criticism, that idea of trying to figure out what was original to these first authors, is how we're trying to get back to what we know as inspired and infallible and perfect. That's why I think we can have great confidence that our Bibles, the copies of God's Word that we have, are well attested in the manuscript traditions that we have, meaning The stuff we read, we can go find Greek and Hebrew and sometimes Aramaic manuscripts that say the exact same thing that our Bibles say. It's just, of course, not in English. So that's why we can have confidence. But even so, God and his plan decided to use people. And just to say, how gracious is our God? He didn't just, you know, open up the sky and you you hear some sound and light and it just kind of like hovers down like, oh, here's the Bible. God instead uses people whom he he knows will make mistakes. He uses us and he shows us that he is a God committed to us to give us his word in our language in a way that we can understand. That is so kind and merciful of God. Instead of being critical of God using humans, I think we should be grateful that that has been his plan. Let's also remember, third, the extra stuff in Mark is mostly repeated stuff from other Gospels. 
That's what I wanted to bring out. We're not dealing here with fact or fiction, only just the question, was this what Mark wrote? So don't get worried. Don't try to rip this out of your Bible. Even though it probably wasn't original to Mark, I don't think it is full of fiction. And I don't think it's something that we should disregard as untruthful. So then last, we can say it was probably added by a scribe who felt like ending Mark's gospel in verse 8 was too abrupt, and then concluded that the original ending was lost, and so added an ending from other eyewitness accounts here in Mark's gospel. And then that's what we have. But the earliest manuscripts don't have it listed. In fact, it doesn't appear in any Greek manuscripts before the 5th century. So those are things to consider. And I hope that in this, maybe your eyes have been opened a little bit to how we got the Bible, how good God has been in giving us his word, and how there is a real science behind what we have as we read the story of scripture and come to know who God is and how he has revealed himself in Christ. So I think there are two takeaways from this discussion. The first takeaway is that we should trust our Bibles. We really should. We should see God's hand of providence in having all we need. I mean, imagine how many points in history could have just put an end to having God's word. Moses finishes, you know, the first five books of the Old Testament, and that first copy could have been destroyed or lost. But no, it got copied, and then that copy got more copies, and it just continued to spread. And the same is true with our New Testament manuscripts. At any point, it could have just died, but God kept it going. And as a side note, this is also a reason why we can trust our Bibles. These documents were being copied like crazy. So when Paul would write a letter, say, to Ephesus, He writes it, sends it off, it gets there. Immediately they would copy it and send it somewhere else where it would be read and copied. And then they they would read and copy it. And it would just continue to go like that because they realized this is important. This is God's word. People must have it. This is how we know God. And through all of that, I mean, imagine if these biblical authors wanted to spread lies or kind of get in, you know, some big concocted plan of misleading God's people. That would have been incredibly hard to do. I think even impossible to do with the amount that these documents were copied and spread and seen by others, seen by eyewitnesses of that day who could have stood up and said, that's not what happened. And yet it continued and God's word continued to be spread and copied. So we should trust our Bibles. God knows what we need, and we hold in our hands exactly what we need. The second thing I think we can conclude is just how to treat Mark's gospel. We we should read all of Mark's gospel, but we should view his work as ending in verse 8, and not probably include verses 9 through 20 in what we can say he wrote, but we can hold the truths that those verses affirm in other passages. So, how that's handled, you know, in teaching and preaching. I think that's up to the wisdom of pastors and teachers. But in all of this, I think it's incredibly interesting to know how God's word has come to us, how much we have. There is, as one New Testament textual critic says, an embarrassment of riches of what we have access to here in our day and age. I mean, we have over 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament alone. That's incredible. 
we have just a handful of manuscripts that talk about Julius Caesar or other historic figures. We have so much to be thankful for and to know and to study. And so in all of this, let's trust God. Let's thank God for his word. Let's know it. Let's put it to memory. Let's be people who live by the book. Thanks for listening to this episode of The First Podcast. Until next time, for your joy and God's glory. Thank you.